comes from uh, an extant sermon of mine that I preached in this very pulpit here several years ago in which I said one of the great heresies loose on Christendom comes in high school annual where Juanita writes to Kenneth Wayne who sat by her in study hall on whom she had a crush most of their senior year. She writes in his annual to Kenneth Wayne, I love you just the way you are. Don't ever change. And then the fantasy that emanates out of that about what if Kenneth Wayne never changed? <laughs> what if Kenneth Wayne took seriously that admonition by that a pubescent Aphrodite who carried some romantic fantasy and illusion about never changing. The topic I was given for these two lectures I'll be giving this Sunday and next have to do with change. So I thought today I would approach change from a psychodynamic and then next week I'm going to approach change from a theological dynamic and to think about today the evolution of the human psyche and talk next week about the evolution of the church or Christian theology and the scary admonition of some who fear change and hope that the church will never change. It is said that there are five basic human fears. Now, the first one is the fear of being smothered. The second one is the fear of being abandoned. The third is the fear of being attacked. The fourth is the fear of being exposed. And the fifth is the fear of our own destructive instincts. Smothered, abandoned, attacked, exposed, and fear of that inner enemy that each of us carries, repressed and dark, with its own autonomy that serves as a silent and constant threat to consciousness, our own deep, unreconciled inner instincts. To which I would add a sixth, and that is the fear of change. There is in our downstairs a picture of my mother and my brother and me. Every morning when I awaken and go to get my coffee, I walk by it every evening. When I take my glass of water and go to bed, I see the picture three or four times an evening walking from our study to the kitchen, I will see this photograph. It's a photograph of my mother and my brother and me. It was taken, obviously, in the mid to late 40s. My brother looks to be five. I look to be three or four. We're both dressed alike. To my certain knowledge, it's the last time <laughs> that the colonel and I dressed alike. 
We have on striped sweaters and those little boy pants with suspenders. Our hair slicked down, brill cream, a little dab will do ya. My mother has a fashionable late 40s pompadour. She has on, looks to be like a dark suit with a collar that goes all the way out to her shoulder padded shoulders. She has a look on her face, a kind of beatific look, as if all the world is held in that moment for her. Not unlike Blake, who talks about eternity in a grain of sand, or infinity in a grain of sand, or eternity in a moment. Now, the fact is that <clears throat> That was the best of times for her in so many ways. She knew who she was, what she was called to be. And she was in some ways, unfortunately, a woman of her times. And she saw that most of her justification was in birthing and mothering. She was not rewarded for much else. Though there was great reward for her in birthing and mothering. It was a kind of vocation that from the beginning was guaranteed to fail. That is to say that she would be unemployed. Now the sentimental uh, romantic part of me loves that picture. I love to warm sort of, it hurts so good, nostalgia of walking by and seeing the picture. At the same time, the adult me sees something profoundly sorrowful in that picture. Not only is the sorrow about the fact that those days were brief and fleeting, but also the ego seduction and the belief that those days would never end. As I'm fond of saying about sick people and well people is that sick people never think they'll get well again and well people think they'll never be sick again. And so it is with the ego seduction of any moment in time which brings us reverie or meaning is that we presume that that moment will never pass. And further, and for another lecture, the fundamental and profound sorrow that my mother, though more than adequate and indeed a good enough mother, was never given the inner resources to transcend her vocation of mother and struggled the second half of her life with inadequate inner resources in which to become something other than a mother. Kierkegaard says that life is remembered backward but must be lived forward. If we could for a moment, it's very difficult for human beings, if we could for a moment suspend all value about the issue of change. By suspension of all value, I mean let us not say that it is good or let us not say that it is bad. Let us just presume for one moment that it is. The change is, undeniably ever-present, the change is. And if it is, what is our attitude toward it? And I suspect if you reflect for a moment as I have for more than one, 
you will agree that we have conflicting feelings about change. Let's see if we can reflect for a moment on why we have such mixed or conflictual feelings about change. This unique human vocation of becoming conscious has created for us, unlike, evidently unlike any other organism, a kind of phenomenon that apparently no other organism holds. And that is this idea of fear of the unknown. Now, fear uh, is object-centered. That is to say, I'm afraid of that snake that's on the ground, or I'm afraid of that car that is approaching me at a high speed, or I'm afraid of falling when I'm at high places. I'm afraid of being smothered. I'm afraid of being abandoned. I'm afraid of being attacked. I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm a afraid of those inner instincts that are, I consider to be my enemy. But anxiety is the fear of the unknown, and it's the anxiety that is such a great eroder of human health, human serenity, human peace, and human meaning. Anxiety is that undifferentiated fear. It is that haunting, continual sense that I will not be. Consciousness is about developing a conscious attitude toward existence through this organism known as the ego. I've lectured for years in this place and others about developmental psychology, the idea that we develop in these stages, developmental staging as it's known, and that really that's an ego psychology. It's a psychology about how our ego develops an increment. And our conscious attitude toward life and the incumbent anxiety that comes and that fear of the unknown, that is, we don't know what it is we're afraid of, but ultimately what we fear is not being because the whole struggle of consciousness is to develop this ego as a center. And it takes a long time to do so. Half our life, as it were. Now, of course, the irony is that once we develop it, we're asked to let it go. So the kind of fear that we're talking about really is anxiety, and the anxiety is the fear of the unknown, and the unknown ultimately is the threat of non-being. And so there is within us a sort of fundamental anxiety for all of us. So what the ego likes to do is to find an environment or setting that feels safe or se secure and then play tick-a-lock. You play that game when you were small, tick-a-lock, tick-a-lock? I bet you did and I bet you do. The ego gets from the very beginning, this ego center, this organism, the organism of the ego is that organ of consciousness that orients us in the world, locates us, tells us where we are. It's the organ that gives us a sense of time and place. It's the organ of spatio-temporality. It's the organ also that gives us that ability to connect and de 
differentiate, uh, identifying function of consciousness. It also gives us our own sense of identity. So the first messages we get from parental figures or surrogate figures about this world are very influential as to what kind of anxiety we have about the unknown or the anxiety we have about our environment. For instance, the attitude of our mother, not only toward us, but toward the world in which she brings us. I have a friend to whom I said one night, uh, I've never really talked to you much about your mother. What's your mother like? And she said, well, she's a neurotic nut. <laughs> I like that response for two reasons. One, the alliteration is appealing. The other is it's an honesty, but it's also revealing. Who among us could not at some point make some similar response uh, to the one who taught us about the nature of the world in which we exist? Wouldn't it be fun to list the admonitions we received about the world and its safety from our mothers? The encouragement that we got to take risks, to adventure. <laughs> the support we received for not caring what others thought. <laughs> to encourage us to leave home with dirty underwear. But most of us receive this message, this conflictual message I'm fond of rehearsing and having done so for a number of years, caught the eye of many people who had instant recognition of, oh my God, he's talking about me. So all of us grew up with this conflictual message from our mother and that is, you cannot live without me. And if you stay here, I will kill you. <laughs> So it is with the first two human fears, abandonment and smothering. So they become not only facts, but they become metaphors for our entire journey. That fear that we cannot make it without her, that the world is fundamentally unsafe, and that our dependence upon her is our dependence upon our security and safety. Now, if many of us got this sense from our mother that we could not exist without her, can you imagine what happens for those who get the message, I am not here for you? I mean, if it's a fundamental scary message that the world is not safe without me, what kind of message is it to say, I'm not here for you? I was given a pillow several years ago and I fashioned a lecture out of it that I've paraded around the country called, If It's Not One Thing, It's Your Mother. <laughs> it is so trite and passe, even for one who is a diplomate, Jungian analyst, <laughs> to continue the reductionist idea that everything goes back to our mother. I don't think everything does go back to our mother. As a matter of fact, I would like to relieve you from the presumption that 
Pittman has fallen into that reductionist idea that everything goes back to our mother. I think that's a ridiculous reductionist idea. It's only about 95%. <laughs> what I'm developing is this sense that our ego is the only part of the psyche that's really afraid. The ego is simply a periscope of the unconscious in a way of sort of looking out to see where we are in eternity. Ah, yes, this is history. We're existing in time and space. It's in the 1990s, southwestern United States. So that's where we are. And yet, you know, the ego as a part of consciousness seduces the entire psyche into believing that the ego is the center of all consciousness. And that the ego's existence is all of existence. So that if the ego disappears, the world does. That's the grandiose view of the ego. The ego is not only the, not the center of the universe, it's not even the center of the psyche. The self is, and that's that word that's ill-defined and undefinable. It's what Jung called the center of the psyche and its circumference, meaning that it's the essence of who we are and the totality of all we are, probably synonymous in some ways with the word soul, and that is something about us that is simply eternal, that has mild curiosity about biological death. It may in some ways be the easiest one we experience. Many deaths that are part of the ego development and part of ego structure and its own health and soundness is uh, the confidence that we need not fear any death because we have survived so many. That's called experience. Now for those of us who do not reflect upon experience and remain stuck in some elementary or infantile ego state, then we remain stuck in that fundamental fear of the future and of the unknown and change. So change is one of the great human fears, and that is the fear that this security I sense by this known is far superior to the anticipated fantasy or the anxiety of the unknown and a crass, a gross, but memorable statement. We will take bad breath over no breath. And so perhaps I'm not revealing anything terribly new except to say that fear of change is part of what it means to be human. Even enlightened human beings like to hang on to those things that have brought us pleasure and meaning. My mother, uh, sitting for that photographer with uh, the world in her arms, where she knew who she was and therefore felt some sense of meaning and security. And yet the seduction that that moment would last forever. Even for us enlightened ones, those things that mean so much to us and have given us such pleasure and such sense of identity that are taken from us throw us into a kind of disorientation, a kind of sadness 
At worst, depression, at best, a kind of natural nostalgia, which is a pain for the past. I said to my wife at breakfast the other morning, let's call the boys and tell them to come home. We've had enough. <laughs> this growing up thing was a good idea, but it doesn't apply to them. How nice it was to come home in the early evening and to open the front door and from all over the house the cry daddy's home. And for them to run from two directions and to leap into my arms and have that sense of reverie that comes from the adoration of children who've placed in you an ultimate value and meaning and you have reciprocated. And then you go through that incredibly depressing, disorienting period where you walk into the door and they say, my God, he's home. <laughs> Any of us, even at our best, has a sense of sorrow and sadness about those times in our lives and our development that meant so much to us that are no longer a part of where we are. There is uh, no answer in the back of the book. And I could develop in a semester course the whole idea of ego development reaching its apogee in the infamous midlife crisis, or James Hollis calls it the midlife passage, whatever it is. It's a keyhole through which we must go. And everything that we've developed and brought with us in the first half of life, developing those ego attachments that tells us that we are and that we are important, and that midlife we must go through that keyhole, a passage into the second half of life, and we cannot take anything with us that we have accomplished or gained in the first half. The metaphor that Jesus used was the kingdom of God. And that is, if you're going to leave the kingdom of the world and enter into the kingdom of God, you cannot take anything with you. It is like going through the eye of a needle. And so we have to give up all of those things that we have gained and that have given us such security and such meaning and such identity. Every relationship we now have and every possession we now own, every award that we now carry or hang around our neck or on our wall will disappear. I think that the fundamental sense of mental health that must be conscious is the attitude that my ultimate meaning does not rest in anything outside of me. Now that apparent narcissistic statement, that apparent centrality of my place in the universe is a misunderstanding if you don't hear carefully what it is I'm saying. And that is, for reasons beyond our comprehension, we can only guess, we can make educated guesses, we can make reflective guesses as to why we're here and what it is we're to do. I am now, and I'll speak about it next week, convinced, at least as a value for me, that what I am to do is to help God become God that God has decided to become more and given us a place in the process of God becoming more.
a rather unorthodox statement, one that has not garnered lots of popularity, but my mother told me to hell with them. What I'm speaking about is the sense that we got very clearly in the Christian myth that I find echoing continually in my life, and that is that the ultimate meaning of life is found and generated from within me rather than outside of me. Now, I'm not talking about the meaning in the universe, but I'm talking about my intra-psychic meaning, the meaning I find for my life is not finally found in anyone or anything outside of me. A metaphor I like to use for this idea that we're talking about of codependency or symbiosis, and that is that my life is generated from outside of me. That being a mother or a father or a priest or an analyst or a child or a doctor, or a lawyer, or an Indian chief, that generates life for me. There comes a time for each of us that we are placed figuratively through crisis, through trauma, loss, divorce, failure, through being abandoned or exposed. We are placed in an intensive care unit where the self says to the ego, we're going to put you in such crisis that you're going to have to realize you're not the center of the universe. That there is so little over which you have control. And we are going to put you in this intensive care unit and we're going to unplug you from all of the life support systems that are outside of you. So that if you're going to generate life, you'll have to generate it from within. And so being a child is pulled away from us. We grow up. Even literally for some of us, our parents literally no longer live. If your identity and source of life is in being a child, that'll be taken away from you. If your source or for identity and meaning rests only in another human being or in a small group of human beings, we're going to unplug you. Enough of them will move, disappoint you, desert you, or die to where you begin to realize that if any person disappoints you, then that potential is held with all people. So that we unplug from you the sense that any other human being can take responsibility for your meaning, for your happiness, for your sense of peace. That will be unplugged. So it is with vocation. So it is with every identity that you fashion for yourself outside yourself from which you have derived meaning. That poor mother sitting and that meaningful, inscrutable smile holding her two sons thinking she is at the center of the world. And that was ripped from her arms by life. So that each of us has invested our meaning in something, someone, or many things outside ourselves. 
And our fear of change is the fear of disorientation, that if those things are taken from us, can we generate meaning from within? Can the meaning of my life be portable? Can it be something that's with me at all times? Can it be something that generates life from within me rather than outside me? If my life is generated from outside of me, then I am a parasite. Because if those things that give me life are taken from me, I die. Being a parish priest all these years and being in the clinic for a number of years, I can see figuratively and literally people dying because things in which they've invested meaning have been taken from them. So that gets acted out in subtle ways, gets acted out and projected in ways that we fight over inanities in order to keep us from wrestling and dealing with the true traumatic meaning. So we expend years and hours, I at the forefront, arguing about whether we change the prayer book. What patience God must have <laughs> with us human beings who are so self-deceptive as to believe that that has any importance to anything. But yes, it means a lot to that conservative mindset. I'm not talking about politics now. I'm talking about psychology that has projected onto outer change our own inner anxiety about our inability to generate a life from within. And so we project it out onto all kinds of outer things. I'm not here lobbying to say all change is good. I'm not here lobbying saying all change is bad. I'm not even here lobbying. <laughs> but I'm reflecting on why it is that we fear change so much is because it's an outward and visible sign of the fact that our egocentric presumption that we will never die, it will be called into question for anybody who observes life at all. And if our egocentric meaning is all there is, then it will disappear, it will be taken away. If our meaning is in our egocentric life, then it will end. And so when we see hints of things changing, of things disappearing and becoming different, we want to reverse that. We want to hang on to it. And that's because it's a clue that the day will come when we will not exist as we know ourselves. And that's why any spiritual or mental health depends on an inner life. A life of interiority which says that my life and my meaning is generated from within me. So that we can safely recapture the tradition of our faith that says God dwells within us. And that that which generates life and brings meaning, if we could say with the, the word beyond all words, God, then that God may be experienced outside ourselves but that God dwells within us. So our fear of change and our constant projection of our fear of change onto outer world events continues to keep us from focusing on the real issue. 
So that if we can argue about change in the outer world, then we don't have to face the fact that what we really fear is dying. Until you become reconciled to your death, you cannot live. And death is all around us in a variety of forms, every day. And we deny it. We are afraid to face it. Because we have so invested meaning in life outside ourselves that if those things disappear, we are a people without meaning. Denial is part of the human fabric. It's an ego defense that keeps us from the horror of the immature fears we have. Stuart Smalley says, you know who Stuart Smalley is, he's sort of king of the 12-step movement. He parodies a sense that that could be the answer to everything. As he said, growing up, he didn't think he was very smart, and he didn't think he was very good, and he didn't think people liked him. So when he received his conversion, his credo became, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. He says that many of us are like Cleopatra, we're the queen of denial. <laughs> so it is with all of us. I fear change, it's part of being human. Let me also dismiss the psychological, philosophical, and theological mistake that because you understand something, you don't have to experience it. Somebody said to me when I left the cathedral to train as a psychoanalyst, is this a midlife crisis? <laughs> I responded, case book. They said, well, why are you doing that? You've lectured about it for all these years. Which I responded, yeah, I knew about puberty too. <laughs> I don't want to ever imply to anybody that because I understand something that I don't have to go through it. As a matter of fact, that's how I understand it. So I'm just as afraid as you are and I just hang on like you do. My boys say to me, Dad, decided in 1961 how to dress and he's just never changed his mind. <laughs> I referred to myself the other day as, in spite of my unorthodoxy, I'm basically a Brooks Brothers Anglican. So I'm as afraid of change as anybody because I have an ego, and that ego is fairly dominant, as many of you have experienced with me through these decades. I hope there's a difference between a strong ego and a big ego. It's only the difference between mine and yours. It's like the difference between being aggressive and assertive. I'm assertive, you're aggressive. My ego's strong, yours is huge.
So the stronger your ego, the harder it is to give it up. I have a strong ego. Very hard for me to let go of all those ego attachments. And I have many, as many as you. And so, uh, let's just begin to understand that some of these basic fears of change really are not about the thing on which we have focused the fear. And as long as we continue to debate and argue about those things out there, then we don't have to deal with those fundamental things in here. And so all of those arguments through the years in the church about change, nobody quite understood what it was we were really arguing about or what we were fearful of. What we're fearful of is dying. I don't think that God spends a whole lot of time worrying about two things that we just think he does. One is athletics. <laughs> I'd like to go on record publicly, prophetically, and say I'm so damn tired of anybody appealing to or referring to God concerning an athletic event that I wish I could in a moment erase all references to God concerning any victory of any college or professional athletic team. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> With the exception of Oklahoma State. I feel the same way about praying before those games. Some of you have heard me give that summary of my theology about prayer before athletic events. I got it from Joe Garagiola when Tony Kubek said to Joe Garagiola before a Cuban batter crossed himself when he went to the plate. And Tony Kubek said, Joe, well, I said, you're a good Roman Catholic. You go to Mass on Sunday morning when we're on the road. I said, what do you think about those players who cross themselves before they hit? Rajola says, ah, why don't they just let God enjoy the game? <laughs> now, God is of little concern, I think, about many of the things about which we most concern ourselves. Maybe even most particularly in the church. And so all of those things we've argued about that have been so passionate and of such meaning and such uh, consequence. You know, clergy have been fired over such things. A wise bishop said to me when I was a young priest, look, Pittman, when you go to a new place, you can preach heresy. They don't care really about theology. Don't move the candles on the altar. <laughs> It took me five years and ten years off my life to move the altar 18 inches. <laughs> there was a great rumor that he was going to move the rude screen when I was here. Now, I started that rumor. <laughs> because while everybody was arguing about whether he was going to move the rude screen or not, I changed everything else. So the things that we fear get projected outside of us and we're focused on 
minutiae and trivia in order not to have to deal with our fundamental fear, which is of dying. Now, the last thing I'll say is that bell tolls for me. is that if Christianity is about anything, it's not in the business of preventing death. It encourages them. If Jesus came and if Christianity is about preventing death, we have yet to have one success, including Jesus himself. That what the Christian myth is about, among other things, and its centrality is not about overcoming death. It's about overcoming the fear of death. And that is to say that the truth and meaning of all of life exists in each human being. And that when we pass away, that simply doesn't. And that our ultimate fear of change is the fear of the ultimate change, which is death, which may be for us a great surprise that everything we have sought comes to us in a moment. See you next week. Thank you.